This episode of the Third Sector Podcast is brought to you by Ansvar. Ansvar protects over 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm senior reporter Stephen Delahunty. And I'm Emily Bird, editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing charity's role in the development and rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. But before we get into that, I just want to say welcome again, Stephen, to the podcast. It's good to have you back. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to be back. About your second time on the mic, isn't it? Yeah, I've had one or two bit parts, but I think this is the largest role I've had so far. So hopefully I won't do Rebecca out of a job when she returns from a holiday, Um, but I'm looking forward to our chat i think rebecca should be very afraid personally <laughs> yeah, yeah she's gonna have some big shoes to fill when she comes back off at holidays <laughs> uh for our listeners who might not have encountered you before tell them just a tiny bit about yourself something interesting they might not necessarily know i am not very good at pottery apparently um <laughs> i spent the weekend um trying to make a bowl out of pottery class with some friends and it turned into a plant pot nice because you can't put stuff in a bowl that has a hole in the bottom. So <laughs> I think I, I think I saved it because, you know, plants need a little bit of drainage. So, yeah, don't ever hire me to make you a bowl or anything like that because I'm not very good. There you go. You heard it here first. All right. Well, uh, let's talk then about some COVID-19 vaccines. So ever since the COVID-19 pandemic began, the hope of a way out has been rooted very much in the science. The development of vaccines really were a light at the end of the tunnel, and it marked a key turning point in the pandemic when the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca jabs were approved for use at the end of last year. So um, the rollout's going ahead, full steam ahead in this country. Stephen, do you know many people who've had their jab? Yeah, actually, I am the only person in my family who hasn't had it yet. Um, Both... Well, my younger sister is an NHS nurse, so obviously she had it quite early on. Um, She's been working on a ward in a hospital in Manchester the entire time. And my other sister works in social care, so obviously she had it quite early on. Um, Both my parents had it only very recently, um, which I was quite relieved of because... And this is quite telling, I think, of what I found when doing the feature, is that she almost wasn't going to take it because of a lot of... I'd say anti-vaccination stuff that comes up on her Facebook. Is this your mum, right? Yeah, this is my mum and I had to talk around out of it and I was like, what Facebook groups are you in, mum, to be getting this content? But <laughs> she, yeah, she had it finally anyway. Well, good job for talking your mum around. Um, and obviously, you know, as, as they have been at every stage of this pandemic, you've been writing about the fact that charities of all shapes and sizes have been playing a really central role in the development of the vaccine and the rollout of it. Um, And this isn't just about having volunteers at vaccination stations, although obviously that is a really, really important thing. Charities have been working on everything from the development of drug trials through tackling vaccine hesitancy um, and providing spaces in which vaccinations can take place. Um, So so tell us a little bit about kind of the feature and um, what it was like to start sort of working away on that piece yeah i guess it came about because 
you know, obviously in my role over the course of the last year, I kept hearing anecdotally from different charities about individually some of the work they were doing, or, you know, you'd read the odd story in the news about the work of a particular volunteer. And it just occurred to me that there was a much larger story to tell there about the wider sector's involvement. We found that, you know, some of the big charities that have scientists or have a research department, like Cancer Research UK, had actually um, lent their science you know, their scientists and their resources to the actual creation of the vaccine. So I thought that was an interesting side to tell. And then, you know, there was a lot of coverage of the volunteer drive in terms of people who volunteered for the trials, but also volunteers who worked in the centres once the vaccine started getting rolled out. So I thought there was their story Mm. to tell. And then the other side of this as well, which sort of leads into me having to convince me more about getting vaccinated was the campaign and advocacy on vaccine take-up in communities and ensuring people it was safe. Um, And there was lots of charities obviously involved in that because of their contacts in communities. Completely. And I I mean, it was a joy to read. And this was in the spring issue of Third Sector. It will be online soon. So I would encourage everyone to go and read this piece. Um, And the the things that threw me was there were there were definitely elements of it that I just hadn't considered until I, I read it. So when you think of drug trials, for example, charities might not necessarily be the first thing that leaps to mind with that. But as you were saying, you know, we have these big medical research charities, charities like Cancer Research UK, which are involved in the funding work and the development of treatments from everything through cancer and dementia. And during the pandemic, they have been reapplying those skills to take on the COVID-19 virus. So um, tell us a little bit about that medical side. Yeah, well, what a- Cancer Research UK were one of the first um, organisations I spoke to um, because, yeah, their they're scientists you know, had been involved in a number of different ways. Um, one of the main ways was in a drug trial, which some of the scientists got involved with repurposing a drug called Camostat with another organisation, which they suspected that it had the potential to block the virus from entering human cells. Um so together with this other company, they they started testing that. And they did that by uh, over 18 who'd been tested positive for coronavirus, uh, but that could stay at home. They would enter into a monitoring period with the scientists where they could try the drug and see how it affected, obviously see how that affected the virus while they had it. And that was, you know, over the years it became so successful that now Public Health England is hoping to, you know, move that on from just being a drug trial to be something that is actually rolled out nationally as, you know, we move into this next stage of tackling the virus. What I think was amazing about that and and reading that piece was when the the scientists at Cancer Research were talking to you, they were saying, of course, you know, doing this work is really important because it helps to relieve that burden on the NHS, but also it ties in really, really closely to the charity's core mission because, you know, the overwhelming um, impact on the NHS is then delaying um, and having a knock-on effect with cancer treatment, which is at the very core of what it is that they're supposed to do. So it, it all ties together beautifully. Yeah, definitely. And that was what they, they you know, when I was chatting to them, they were always pulling me back to, 
you know, yeah, it, it's you do get a sense of being part of like this national effort of something that you know is completely unprecedented. But they were all, you know, very humble to be able to event. You know, really, it comes back to like you say, the charitable aims, the contributing to this national effort. But it's also about making sure that when things do get back to a level of normality, that, that they can get back to focusing on you know their beneficiaries and and the work that they've done before, and in some cases take that learning over the last year and start applying it to, you know, the work they do with the beneficiaries again. So I think that was all, you know, all, there was a lot of positive learning to come out of it as well. There was a lot of um, personal innovation going on behind <laughs> the scenes, it seemed like. So as, as well as working on the drug trials, you also had staffers at Cancer Research UK taking their very high-octane, high-grade medical equipment, which was not being used because they couldn't do their normal work, um, and adapting it so they could supply frontline NHS staff with the necessary protective gear that they needed um, to fight the pandemic. As you wrote in your article, Stephen, the PPE shortage for NHS and for social care workers was a massive issue over the last year. We had cases where we were seeing some frontline workers photographed wearing PPE that was being made out of recycled bin bags. Um, there were some very tricky questions being raised about the government procurement processes. And then you had staff at Cancer Research UK taking this equipment and just using it to kind of help with with that supply, right? Yeah, I think that was one of the, um, you know, kind of funnier, more bizarre um, aspects to the story that I thought was really nice because I don't know if you've ever been around a 3D printing machine at the moment, but they, they're quite cumbersome and loud. Um, so the, the idea of having three or four of these in, you know, in your living room, printing constantly for the last year must have been quite disruptive for, <laughs> particularly for that individual involved yeah i did ask if he'd sort of okay to you know with the other people he lived with before he decided to do that i'm not sure how happy they would have been with it but yeah you know those that was you know that was a really a story of personal sacrifice that he took on to help the ppe drive so that was really nice and yeah you know there was other staff who yeah, didn't take their equipment home, but, you know, we're going in, still going into the research lab every day and using their equipment to, yeah, to print masks or make gowns or do other things with it. I just really loved the kind of practical vision of a Cancer Research UK staff are going to their line manager and saying, boss, I've got a bit of an unusual request. I really want to take the 3D printers home with me so I can make visors. <laughs> um, it, it puts a whole new spin on the concept of working remotely, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I also would like to see how do you get a risk assessment done for that, what that looked like. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so fair play to them. I, um, yeah, I wonder how long that's continued for but yeah fair play so uh, you know it, it is a tribute to the incredible work of the nhs and the healthcare system in this country that the vaccine rollout has been going as well as it has so far you know so at the time of recording um figures are showing that more than 10 million people which is about a fifth of the overall population are fully vaccinated they've had both jabs and more than 33 million people have had their first dose of the vaccine the NHS is fantastic, but again, this is down to charities and community organising, which has pushed a load of this out at the pace that it has. You spoke to a huge number of organisations, Stephen, who've been on the front line of this rollout, recruiting volunteers, offering spaces for vaccines to be administered. Um, and we've seen these incredible spaces being repurposed for this. So everything from cathedrals to art galleries, and museums and the Science Museum as well. They've all been turned into vaccination hubs. You spoke to a lot of volunteers who were actually the ones putting needles in people um, for your piece. What was it like to have those conversations with, with them? It was 
I mean, again, yeah, the, the, the overall response was that what was um, true of all of them was that they all had some sort of personal story or personal connection maybe already to what had gone on with the virus that uh, had driven them to get involved. Maybe they had family members that um, were working in the NHS or sadly in some cases, you know, they had lost a close relative already to the disease. Um, so when the opportunity came about to volunteer, you know, they, they all jumped at it basically. And what was came across in their experience that one, the sense of... Um, relief from individuals getting the vaccine after going through the last year um but also how sort of humbled and proud they were at the same time to be part of such a large you know a large national effort you know there's a big bigger picture going on that you might be helping individuals get the job but this has been a huge national effort for the country to recover from this and they just felt that really they you know they felt very very lucky and very honored that they could donate the time in the way they did they were said there's a couple of personal stories in there, which I won't ruin before you read the magazine, but, you know, the relief and joy that they shared with others who were getting the vaccine, yeah, for me, was um, was very nice to hear. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so much of this rollout and so much of, of, of the vaccine narrative and the stories, they are all very personal. They're highly individual. Everyone is going to kind of be, be receiving their jabs and it's all going to mean different things. And I found that very profound and also the the sheer range of people who were stepping up to volunteer so you had an electron microscopist um working at the crick institute who would normally be handling kind of what i can only describe as super microscopes that look at tiny cells and microorganisms and she you know alongside the day job um then trained as a vaccinator and found herself then giving jabs to NHS workers, which is a very, very strange place to be. And I think I would have been very <laughs> anxious about doing it, doing it well. Yeah, and there was an, um, another person I spoke to who did special effects in film. Obviously, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, uh, you know, the film industry had basically closed down because you can't obviously social distance and shoot a feature film. Um, and while she had been a volunteer at St. John's Ambulance since she was at university, her key motivator was that as a person of colour, she thought it was important to, you know, provide that visibility, not only as a, in terms of representing her community, but, you know, to help with, again, vaccine uptake. And as a person of colour, it was important for her to be seen as a frontline healthcare professional because she had discussed vaccine hesitancy with her family and in her community as well. So it was important for her to be a visible sort of representation yeah. of, of someone who wasn't scared to get the vaccine and work in that environment. So that was really important for her to be the visible sort of face of that. Absolutely. And, and of course, charities have been doing a huge amount of work with the people that they support to both deliver and encourage vaccine take up among clinically vulnerable groups. So, so this spans from physical delivery. You know, there are lots of organisations like Change Grow Live, who are working with the street health team of Bevan Healthcare up in Leeds. Um, so far, they've vaccinated 500 people who are vulnerably housed or homeless in the area of Leeds. So those those practical interventions and then organisations doing exactly as you've just said, Stephen, working to tackle vaccine hesitancy. The British Red Cross, I remember, uh, launched a national campaign into this issue in February, and I thought it was really, really effective. 
Um, and it was all based around giving practical advice on how to have informed conversations with the people that you love about the vaccine being a kind thing to do, a good thing to do and something that saves lives. And it looked to me like a really useful uh, and constructive intervention. And of course, there are groups where this work is especially important. Research shows that black, Asian and minority ethnic communities in Britain are both more likely to die after contracting COVID-19 and they're more reluctant to receive the vaccines. Research published at the beginning of February found that nearly all early recipients of the vaccines in England were white. And that's according to the Royal College of General Practitioners. Studies have also found that white people were more than twice as likely to receive the jab than black British people and one and a half times more likely than people with Asian heritage. And you spoke to Kunle Alalodi, who is the chief executive of Voice for Change England, kind of about this issue, which is a big one. Yeah, definitely. And it, um, he was very keen to point out the disparities showing during the pandemic, which he felt had been highlighted. Other research yeah, shows that black and Asian people in England are up to 50% more likely to die after becoming infected with the virus, as well as being more likely to have jobs that place them at risk. In terms of contracting it? Yeah, well, you know, if you look at, yeah, you know, black and Asian people and you look at the jobs they've done that have continued throughout the pandemic in terms of like travel and public transport and stuff like that, those communities have, have been more at risk of contracting it while, you know, other people have been able to stay at home. And that was a big thing. That was a lot of what we talked about. Um, and on top of that, he just described a huge amount of mistrust with the government in some communities as well, mm. because there's been a a pretty appalling historical legacy of medical experiments conducted on black people, which he says, you know, understandably has stoked um, hesitancy in, in, in taking the vaccine. And his organisation, Voice for Change England, has been working to counteract those concerns with, they ran some information sessions with the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, and the Vaccines Minister, um, Nadim Howie. And he said the next challenge for him now is looking into issues around vaccine passports because they, you know, they bring around the, the similar problems in terms yeah. of mistrust and how they'll be used. Um, so despite the good news of, of the vaccine being rolled out, there's going to be new challenges ahead. Something I thought that he said, which was very compelling, was that we are we are on the road out of this now and um, people are talking about getting back to normal. And he was using these points about disparities and the inequalities which have been laid so bare during this pandemic to say it's not going to be enough to just go back to normal because it was a deeply unequal way of living um, and that there are organisations now which need to be having these conversations to ensure that when we do get back to a place where the pandemic is a thing of the past, um, that we're also working proactively to try and redress these inequalities, which have just been present the whole way through. And I thought it was a really, really important thing to be keeping in mind as we are now kind of looking at the road out. Yeah, definitely. I think that, that, that was really the key takeaway from, from our chat that he was, you know, all the pandemic really did was um, highlight those inequalities, you know, in whether it's in, in the healthcare system or in the economy and, and in certain jobs. And, you know, his basic point was that this this narrative of a normal or a new normal is not is not good enough. We need to learn from this and basically really transform, um, you know, the healthcare system and the economy so that these inequalities don't exist. It should present an opportunity to do that. Um, but he was hoping that, charities and organisations that maybe hadn't worked together before and local government could find 
you know, a bit more solidarity and work more collaboratively, which has been shown over the pandemic, but do that in a more concerted way to address these persistent inequalities that the pandemic showed up. In a structural way, absolutely, because I think the whole way through the pandemic, we've seen that charities form an absolutely essential arm of society and they are they are propping up so much um, but this isn't really formally recognised and it doesn't have the structural support that it should do. Um, so I think he's absolutely right that we need to be, you know, when we're thinking about a better society and like a better world, there is a real need and there's a real kind of a common sense reason to have charities at the heart of that because of all the work that they do. And I think it's just, it's so beautifully illustrated in this in this article. Um, the work continues charities are going to be out there helping deliver these vaccines for many months to come um, and they're also going to be at the heart of the recovery as we move into that as well so we just have to hope that they they do get the support that they deserve in the meantime i would encourage all of our listeners to keep an eye out on our website uh, for the story written by Stephen. and once it has been published we will include it in the show notes for this episode Hey, guess what, Rebecca? Oh, I don't know. This is this is very open. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know what. Tell me. It could be anything. But it is, in fact, that we have launched a special subscription offer for the listeners of the Third Sector podcast. Ooh, that's nice. It is nice. I like it a lot. So listeners mm. <laughs> who sign up to Third Sector's The Information Package can now get 50% off the first three months of their subscription when they pay by quarterly direct debit. All they need to do is go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to get involved. And when you do that, you will gain access to our brilliant magazine, unlimited news stories, high value sector analysis, and of course, lots more views and opinions from myself and yourself. Which, you know, if you're listening to the Third Sector podcast, clearly you're not adverse to. You're, you're okay with it at the very least, if not actively enjoying it. Uh, so where do they need to go to get that again? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Rebecca. Um, they need to go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to sign up today. Each week, we bring you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we have spotted in the sector. And this week... Darth Vader's private Star Wars collection is going to be auctioned off to benefit Alzheimer's Research UK. The charity announced that a treasure trove of rare and never-before-seen Star Wars memorabilia owned by the late Darth Vader actor Dave Prowse, who died last November after suffering from Alzheimer's disease, is due to be auctioned with a percentage of the proceeds going to Alzheimer's Research UK. So it was a, a sad day for the world of the supervillains at the end of 2020 when Dave Rouse did uh, die very, very sadly. Obviously, he was an iconic figure of the screen, one of the greatest supervillains of all time. But his family is now going to be auctioning his collection to raise money for the Alzheimer's research charity. So around 600 lots have been catalogued for sale, which include a rehearsal script from The Empire Strikes Back and a piece of the cockpit from The Millennium Falcon, which featured in A New Hope. Do you have a favourite Star Wars film, Stephen? Controversially, I'm probably not sure if I do. I do enjoy the Star Wars films, but I wouldn't say I was like a fan. You're not a mega fan? No, but I think I've been to like, you know, comic book days before and stuff, and I realise I haven't been as a Star Wars character, but maybe I would like to go one day. 
you could put you in a little R2 unit as a droid and you could go incognito and no one would know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like, yeah, not having to use my legs for the day would be great. But also I don't know if I would, how comfortable it would be squashing my body into the little R2-D2 thing. But yeah, you know, if it's, um, if it's a work thing and I can get the day off to try, then, you know, that's, uh, I'd be fine with that. I'll consider it. If, if you can find a genuine charity angle, I'll consider it. Um, so the auction, which is being conducted by East Bristol Auctions, opened online this week and people will have a chance to bid on the items until May the 4th, which is, of course, known around the world as Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Um, before it switches then to a live auction format. For my part, I just I'm desperately want to know, is the mask in there? Is that going to be up for sale? Because you, you have to wonder, you know, did that go to Dave Rouse after the films ended? Did he managed to kind of snaffle that very, very iconic piece of memorabilia um, and keep it for himself? Or was that retained by the studio, I wonder? Well, you would think maybe they had multiple during film and, and he must have been able to sneak one home. You know <laughs> what I mean? I'm, I'm sure I'd try because it is such an iconic thing. I know. And if you've been wearing it the whole time. I'm not sure I'd ever be able to amass enough capital to make a bid on the original Darth Vader mask. But if I did, I think I would feel compelled to just sort of wear it while I was doing the washing up around the kitchen. Like, <sighs> <laughs> yeah and also a lightsaber as well would be quite fun to have because you know you can buy the imitation ones in stores but having a, an actual real lightsaber would be pretty fun i imagine i've always been absolutely desperate to know what the actual prop lightsabers are like because obviously in the films they have the big pillar of light which you would assume weighs nothing are people just waving around you know the handles in the movies or do you get an actual physical sword like implement which they then put special effects on i don't know yeah i feel like you could make a lightsaber very useful around the house if you needed to you know like mm. slicing bread and cheese and stuff be quite... <laughs> slicing cheese you'd have like it would probably cook the cheese as you sliced it as well you could use it to make tuna melts or something yeah and you could make bread instantly just by cutting a loaf maybe i don't know if that's how it works but <laughs> These are the kind of high-octane questions that we seek to answer on this podcast, absolutely. Yeah, maybe we should send some um, ideas in to, you know, the makers of the next film and just see if they've thought about this, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, like a st Star Wars at home, you know, practical <laughs> DIY tips yeah. for your lightsaber. Um, well, well, Tim Parry, who's the director at Alzheimer's Research UK, described Prowse as a movie icon um, who introduced the world, he said, to one of the most enduring screen villains of all time. Um, so he said it's an honour that Alzheimer's Research UK will benefit from the auction, which will undoubtedly generate a huge amount of buzz in the Star Wars community, not least from myself and Stephen, who want to use a lightsaber to make toast. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye on this auction, and I'm sure it's going to raise a great amount of money for an incredibly worthy cause. So snaps to Dave Rouse there um, and to his family, who have very, very generously agreed to release the collection we look forward to seeing if the mask is going to be in there yeah and may the fourth be with you and all the other star wars fans out there we'll be back with another episode very soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app and you'll be the first to know about it until then i'm emily burt and i'm stephen delahunty and our producer is lindsay riley at rethink audio we will see you next week